Welcome back to the No Big Deal podcast with Jack Fox and Jack Nico. And this week, we are really excited to have on with us Emily Jobson. Now, Emily has worked at the likes of Salesforce, where she didn't even know what that company did before she joined, Zwara, Highspot, and most recently as the sales manager for UK and Ireland at Puzzle. One of Emily's biggest achievements has been hitting her target within four months, 230%. Don't worry about it. No big deal, as some would say. Um, and getting promoted as sales manager of the region and hitting over 300% of her number at high spot. Emily came with a very high recommendation from a mutual friend, Harriet Edwards, and we are really excited to have her on today. Welcome, Emily. Thank you for having me. And what Emily is going to be talking to us today is actually how she lost one deal which then turned into her creating such great champions that she won three deals with stakeholders after they left that business. What a story. Honestly, it's, it's like reality TV. It's hard, heartache and <laughs> an happy ending. <laughs> if, you, if that was a story that wasn't, you wouldn't believe it. Honestly, it was a, a such a bizarre experience to, and even just reliving it. Um, uh, honestly, the highs and lows was like going through a breakup and then getting back together with someone. It was that kind of level of sort of visceral pain and then jubilation. Um, yeah, I've not, I've not got through a deal cycles like it since. <laughs> well, that's a good place for us to start. Is that what did you learn from that deal? What did that deal do for your career? Kind of just like outside of the, of the revenue and ARR that you closed. I think for my career, it was it was just a. a Firstly, a huge learning curve for me. Um, I think that ultimately the way I sort of conducted myself on that deal was a culmination of years of learnings um, and execution. And it was one of those deals where I did everything perfectly. Um, and I know that <laughs> that sounds quite arrogant, but I did everything absolutely perfectly and um, and I lost it. And it, I, I think... Um, I've always been a very, I would say, a positive salesperson in the way that I mentally forecast deals. Um, and it actually, it sort of changed me into being quite a suspicious forecaster. So my career had actually changed how I look, view and um, go around deals because I'd, I'd, I'd never had a rug ripped under me like that before. Um, so it sort of irreparably changed me. Um, but I think it was for the best going forward. Um, I think... Um, my happiness and my positivity is sort of naive at the time, but now I think it's kind of good to come in with a healthy dose of, of sort of skepticism into deals, which I didn't have before. Um, and then in terms of my career, it actually kind of, it was, I think it was a very interesting deal because, I mean, as you kind of alluded to before, that my loss actually ended up in huge wins. So, I mean, internally at the company I was in at the time, I was quite amplified um, and then beyond that I've actually um it's given me some lasting relationships I mean you know one of the champions in particular I'm still in contact with today and actually tried to employ me at one point but um yeah it's sort of stayed with me that deal for, for better or for worse I was gonna say it's interesting isn't it because that's happened to me I've I sold my biggest deal about two years ago and the guy has gone on to buy sales off to get off me at his next company for like equally as big a deal so it's, it's like those things like they just they hang with you for a long period of time good or bad because the, there were so many detractors at the first company this isn't going to work this is we're going to buy the competitor or we're just going to take the stakes quite 
And he just like went all out and now we're, yeah, he just texted me this morning and said, hey, mate, how are you getting on? And it was just a text out of the blue. He's probably asking for something. He's also a salesperson as well. But yeah, it's interesting how these things last and hang with you for such a long period of time. Can you can you give us, because we, we just like to follow these deals in the least. We kind of want to know what happens from the get-go. What did you do in the build-up? How did you get to this position where you were standing in front of the chance to, to open a huge deal? Yeah. So, um, I mean, in terms of the way it came in, nothing extraordinary. It's just a, um, a sort of lead from a BDO. Um, but... I had a connection, I think, with the evaluator immediately. You know, when you just, you, there's just sort of a lot of synergy in between you. I hate that word, such a tech word, but um, there was synergy in between us. And I think we kind of got on. I really understood her kind of purpose. The software I was selling was she would be the administrator, the utilizer, and ultimately see the ROI. Um, but it was one of those softwares where there were benefits for, for marketing, there were benefits for sales, there were benefits for ops, and then benefits for, for, for enablement as well. So um, she was very open. Um, and I would say one of those people who's a champion from day one, that in itself is not pressing, that's just luck. Um, but what she did allow me to do was run what I, I kind of deemed at the time to be a perfect sales cycle. So I'm a huge planner. Um, when I get into to deals, I like to understand who, you know, it's almost like um, when I was a kid, I loved playing Game Boy. It's like a Game Boy. Who's on level one? Who's on level two? Who's on level three? Um, and so working with my champion, I kind of mapped out, right, who do I need to convince? Like, who are they? What do they do? Um, and I was incredibly fortunate that she opened those doors um, for me at the time. So from kind of seeding that initial, initial business case, um, with my champion, I then set out to multi-thread. So I think when we talk about multi-threading, a lot of people think that's just reaching out to someone and saying, hey, and, you know, getting their kind of tick of approval. Um, for me, multi-threading, I like to, like, control in a deal, just like most people. Um, so for me, it's about multi-threading, um, but owning each thread aggressively. So once I'd kind of mapped out the key people that I needed to get on board, so there were technical people, uh, there was three C-suite people, um, I sort of set about building um, with my champion, uh, I guess, business proposal or business cases for each one of them that were pertinent to their remit. So if I use a marketing, the CMO as an example, um, I worked with the CMO to understand like the benefits, the cost. I, at one point, I actually sort of understood like the more than just um, the ROI, understood like what they could do with that money that they were saving from this and how that would benefit. We kind of put helped her put that. I sort of anonymized the business case for her, gave that to her. I gave this, I did the same with the head of sales, um, IT. We did multiple technical dives as well as my champion as well. So I had four incredibly tight, watertight um, reasons three watertight business and one watertight technical, which is the best way that you can come about this. Um, I was honestly calling and speaking to my champion multiple times a day. I, I, at one point I was wishing her kids happy birthday. <laughs> I think that's normal when you're really close to a champion. Um, and it became apparent, I would say close to close, um, that everyone was going to have to submit a case to this to the CEO. Um, it was unclear at that point whether it was going to be individual or who was going to, if someone was going to take this and present it all together. 
Um, and then at the very last minute, I was um, issued a huge curveball. So my champion phoned me and said, um, I've just found out my CEO is best friends with the CEO of your largest competitor, which at the time I actually really didn't think was going to be an issue. Um, in my mind, I was thinking any CEO worth his salt is going to trust his own people to do this kind of evaluation. So first the CMO presented her case um, and it was rejected straight away from the CEO and for very, very weak reasoning. And so at that stage, I then really began to understand that, you know, this sort of threat that I'd really, I, I'd, I'd underestimated how big of a threat it was going to be. So then my next logical uh, step in this was to um, get the CRO, so the head of sales, because um, I find, uh, I mean, depending what industry you're in, but I, I find sometimes they have the loudest voice when it comes to the C, the CEO, them or the CFO. So um, I really had, I, I like locked down my ROI, I locked down all the benefits, I locked down for him cost benefit of going with us, be our competitor, obviously we negotiated like crazy discounts, et cetera. Um, his was shut down as well, his business case by the CEO. Um, and then we had one last-ditch effort um, from the, the woman whose tool it would be, um, and her business case was shut down. So <clears throat> all this was, it still didn't stop me, actually. So then I got all three of them in a room, <laughs> the, the CMO, uh, CRO, and the head of enablement and I was like guys this is what you need to present I was like you need a united front this is why um it's crazy that a personal relationship would affect a tool for you um they all went back to the C the CEO and um he rejected it and ultimately he went with a tool that was owned by his friend um which at the time was it was an like it was such a huge loss to me I'd done and and this is I'd done flawless work on it and I think there's nothing worse than losing a deal when you've done everything perfectly. Like I looked back and I did a deal review with my manager at the time. He was like, right, what, what could have you have done? And I was like, I genuinely don't know. Um, like I was a, sort of a bit desolate <laughs> till the afterwards because actually steals you like, you know, I could have done that. I could have done this. This is like this. The only thing I really could have done is actually identify that this was a bigger threat than it actually yeah, was. Yeah, I know. making friends with CEOs. Um, it's a big <laughs> Question, with this, like you said, like you're owning each thread at the start and then you went and built like pretty robust narratives for each of these champions or executive sponsors. Where did you learn to do that? Um, I don't know where I really learned to do it. I think I've always been a good people person. Um, you I've had like a brainwave at one point. You were like, fuck, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and build individual sponsorships for each. Individual, sorry, not sponsorships, individual um, business case features. It's sort of, I, I think, kind of a fundamental level. I realized that anyone in the C-suite is, whilst you're all in a go-to-market motion together, everyone is out for themselves. And so I think the more that you can approach these people, build relationships with them, and ultimately in an isolated way, um, the better you're going to get in these deals. So I find that if you can build it so... I've done this in a lot of deals. If you can build it to a point where it's, you know, just you and the CMO and it feels like it's just you and you're there for them and you're presenting them with just a business case that works for them. Obviously, in the back of your mind, you know that you also have the business case for, for, for sales and for whatever kind of ancillary units. But I think it's 
once you start to build that out, it's also, it's almost sort of like using people like chess pieces. Because <laughs> so you can start to work out what someone's going to do, what their move is. Um, and I think, you know, if you're sort of in sales long enough, you, you know what, not only what people care about, um, but you kind of understand what move they're going to make. If you can get a sense of people in an individual, as an individual, you can understand, do they like the CRO? Do they want the CRO's job? Yeah. Uh, do they hate each other? And then from there, you can start to work out like, right, how do I get my story to these people, to the to the um, EB? Do I need to use them together? Do I need to use them in silo? Um, do I need them to blow them up so that I've got the guy on the side who actually comes up with the right business case? So I think it's understanding people's motivations. Um, so one thing you always get told in sales, they're like, you know, go for level three pain and, and understand like, will this get them promoted? The answer is everyone wants to get promoted. So that's kind of like, I, I find that advice a bit silly. I Sometimes I find it's more strategic. It's more like, and, and now I sort of ask people, I'm like, what is your remit? Like, what is your KPI? Do you have to do 300% of your number this year? Yes. Okay. Where are you at the moment? What are your struggles? So like really understanding, like, what are their P&L struggles? What are their operational struggles? Whether it's relevant to the tech um, that you're selling them, you'd be surprised how much of that information you can start to pull into business cases to people to justify your solution or to help them justify the solution. Um, so for me, like no bit of information is is too small. Um, I mean, I've had people being like, I just want this deal sold so that I can go to Hawaii. And I've, I've used that as, as, a, as a bargaining chip with people. I mean, sometimes, most times it's more complex, but um, yeah. Do you know what's interesting? I was going to say before we go on about this, like if we were doing like a, a deal review on this, ultimately everyone can run the most perfect deal cycle in the entire world. If you don't get to the economic buyer, like, and they have, in this case, you know, a personal relationships with somebody else or different personal motivations, like your deal is gone. It's gone. You know what I mean? And I think that's true, Jack, in retrospect. And I think if I'd known what I'd known now, you know, maybe I would have qualified out, actually. Mm -hmm. I want to do this. I think that was so unusual. I just thought, no CEO is ever going to block that because of personal, like, you know, in a, in a bonus company these days, who does that? And from <laughs> listening to you talking about it, yeah. It, it makes me think of deals that I've lost where I've also run processes. And, and sometimes when the process is going well, you, you you don't qualify and review it as as stringently as the ones that aren't going well, which can sometimes, let's say, be detrimental. You're like, this is going amazing. Like my champion has got me in front of the CRO and the CMO and the COO and I've got business cases with all of them. We're going to go and present to the CEO and then just like out of nowhere, like what you haven't qualified is like, do you know if the CEO would have a preferable solution who in the company could block this from happening do you know what i mean all sure. of these i've actually done that before where i knew that the cro was friends with the cro our biggest competitor jack and then and they instructed somebody in the in the sales ops department to come and assess us and i said on the first call i was like listen i already know that your cro is friends with that cro so like please tell me now if this is just paying lip service to this so you can tick a box and say you assess the market or are you actually legit and he was like, like, is this legit or do you just want a low price for comparison? What are we? Yeah. Said, no, no, this is legit. We're going to go through this properly. The deal got to the end. And they went with the competitor. And we won the RFP. And we had the better scores. And I was like, mate, you've done me. And he was like, oh, sorry. I didn't realize how much of a relationship it was. It's a much smaller deal than we were talking about here. And there was, the deal cycle was very short. I didn't 
even do remotely the amount of work that you did. But the, even if I, I did try and qualify him out, I asked the question to save myself a heartbreak and still didn't fucking work. I think though, Jack, it taps into one of, this is one of the biggest Achilles heel of all salespeople is arrogant when we're winning you know I mean it's I think it's what but it's like you know when you're like I've got this in the bag I've got everyone it's perfect um and I guess that goes back to my earlier comment like this really taught me skepticism not only of 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 people but of myself like every time I'm in a deal now and I'm like I've got this I'm like do I and now I have to and then I have to sense check and then requalify and requalify and requalify. So it's actually just a healthy stopgap for me because um, I don't want that happening again. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. On the, on the, I'm just going to I don't want to labor the point on this multi-threading um, that you did in this deal, but I'm just so interested in it because it's something that I'm desperate to be good at for, forever. Be it wherever I say it was wrong. I mean, I just want, want to be very good at this. Were you? Were you learning new languages, like interdepartmental languages, as you were going through each, as you were going through each channel? And if so, like, how, how were you learning them, and what were you doing to validate that you were using terms? So a lot of it is just like, I mean, in a, in a lot of roles, you're you're always selling to a similar persona, so you kind of understand their vernacular. Yeah, yeah, you, don't, you know what buzzwords to use, what jargon yeah. to not use, you know what angles to. I think actually the most powerful thing to do when you're doing this kind of um, very acute multi-threading is actually in the initial demo phases. So it's to say to your champion, right, um, because our product touches X person, X person, X person, what we find works really well is if we have a demo for marketing, a demo for sales, and a demo for technical. That way we can get well-rounded. They'll feel like they can speak in their own language. They won't feel compromised by other business units and other business units' objectives, so they'll speak freely. And actually, a lot of people give you access that way because, again, there's always into company politics. So people are like, oh, yeah, that's true. Probably marketing just want to talk about marketing and sales just want to talk about sales. But what you're doing is isolating and you're like, hey, and so you know acutely that person's problem, that business person, and then you start to have relationships with three business units. Not even three people, but three business units. So then you can mm-hmm. start to pick those people off individually and get all of that. And it's so- great. Yeah, it's it's wicked. And it's actually, and, and do you know what's critical about this? And I think from me earlier on in my um, sales career, I wouldn't ask. I would just be like, oh, great, I've got a demo. I'll just ball them all into one demo and I'll just try and hit every use case. But now, yeah, but now I'll be like, okay, great. I need to have a management demo over here and we're going to talk about marketing and sales ops. And before that, I need to have a call with you. So we're best prepared for that. And then we're going to have a team, a day in the live demo. But can I speak to your top performing rep and like about like a medium performing rep so I can prepare for that? I think, and you know what's interesting? You learn from your losses or you learn from like your wins, like all of that. Completely. I use, I sold to quite a, um, a big media company and actually we, pres- we in our initial conversation with them, we said, look, for a deal of this size, for the volume of people, for the complexity of your company, here's what we require. And we split out six different business units. We specified who we would need. We specified we need a prep. We need scenarios. We need a demo. Then we need a post demo call, then subsequent we need a test. And we had agreement actually in all six. And I think for really complicated large deals, that's how you multi-thread in those is by isolating whole business units, creating whole workflows, everything. And so you're the only person that sees all of those six streams, but ultimately you're also the person that puts it together for the company. It's counterintuitive because my logical brain tells me, right, let's make this really easy. Let's get everybody together and agree. Obviously that doesn't happen. The opposite happens, in fact. 
No, it doesn't. And, you know, what if you lose a champion? What if they go on holidays? What if they get fired? Yeah. I, and, and champions also are hard. I think more often in life you get coaches than champions, like people who give you information, but they're not going to sell for you in the other room. So actually when you do things like this, it just gives you more of an opportunity to even find one champion, like two maybe, great, but but, yeah. but then you'll have below that multiple coaches. So either way, you're going to go in with the most amount of knowledge. Obviously, the the selling piece when you're not there is a harder thing to, 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 to build. But again, when you're dealing with people in isolation and you're dealing with people, just them, just them, just them, you get to know them, you get to know what their, their motivations, you get to know about their personal life. And so you're more likely to flip them to a champion as well. I've got an interesting question, actually. And I think in this scenario, you were fairly confident saying that your champion, you know, did introduce you to the people that you wanted to be introduced to. I did. And I was like, I mean, sometimes that's luck, right? Like that's mm. not nothing I did. It was when he was like, I, I get it. You know, we just riffed off the first demo. She was like, love it. My question was going to be, what happens if they don't do that? What, what do you do next? Mm. So if they don't do that, um, and oh, that happens really often. <laughs> I mean, how many times do you get off a demo and like everyone's just silent the whole time? Um, but I always like that I'm, I'm fastidious about it. I won't even ask. I'll just say, I am putting time in your calendar next week and let's, and let's think on this. So again, it's just another touch point. I always think the more you can talk to people, the more chance you have about flipping them. So um, reaching out or if they're if they're not necessarily a champion and you can sense on the call that they're like there's you know trepidation or even if they've got a competitor um that always book in that next call because that's when you can be like hey i'll be clear with you, you look really um it looked like that demo didn't really do it for you is that is that is that fair enough and then you know that's another way to get people open opening up or you can say feels like you love our competitor like is is that a fair enough assessment yes great so what's it what is it going to and I'll, i'm very honest i'll say what is it going to take for me to flip you like where are your concerns is it price is it tech and i i think sometimes being so honest and upfront can catch people off guard i think we're trained to sort of subtly subtly massage information out of people but sometimes hitting people square in the eye and be like i think you thought that sucked what did you think yeah. <laughs> people are like oh yeah i did and you're like great what would flip that for you like what what can we show you do you know what you have to lose a few deals to a few champions for the competitor before you can do that yeah. because when you don't you're right you're just like optimistic you're like i really love it have they seen the demos until <laughs> you, know, so you do a demo that was amazing and then they still buy the competitor you're like fuck that next time i'm asking them yeah you didn't like that did you and then they'll say no but you're saying okay cool can we talk about it you, you can't do that if you're only ever winning deals you wouldn't like that I mean, this honestly now. Now I kind of I just don't have any time. It's ask people. I'm like, what is it going to take? Like, what do I need to show to win this? And people will tell you. Like, not nine times out of ten, people will tell you. Like, what is it that I need to show? Is it is it a commercial? Is it a technical aspect? Um, yeah. I almost think about it in you know, it's like if you do an RFP. RFPs have weightings. You know, like some of it's technical, some of it's commercial. I'm like. What percentage of, of, of this evaluation relies on what we give as a platform and what value and then what percentage is actually just cost? And if you yeah, can get yeah. percentages out of people, that's even more powerful because then, yeah. then you can compromise on, well, we won't have that, but we can, you know, move yeah. this and, yeah. And most salespeople are too bashful to ask that question as well. 
Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I think people expect to be asked these questions. Like, well, they're being yeah. so. I think sometimes we think we're being so subtle. It's like right. they know we're selling to them. <laughs> yeah, especially for me and Jack selling to salespeople. On that point, you know, I actually like, funny enough, we were just chatting about this with my colleague Charlie this morning. And another one of um, the sales team was asking for advice. And, and she she said she had a demo that really didn't go well. And she fronted up on the next call. She was like, that demo shit, wasn't it? And they were like, yeah, it didn't go that well. And what, and she, cause she fronted up, she was like, okay, like this is a big evaluation for you. You've got a live project. I want to do it again. But before that, I want to speak to this person and this person hmm. so I can best prepare. She ended up getting intros then to the people that she actually wanted to understanding more about their business, got the second opportunity to demo and then because she'd had all these conversations, it was so much more targeted than our competitor. She won the deal. Now, obviously, you'd hope that the first demo goes better, right? That you didn't have to sort of run it up. But it's like, you know, if you could just be honest about it and not sort of shirk around it. She was honest with it, fronted it up, asked, came with a resolution, wanted a different outcome, and they gave it to her. I, I mean, that's happened to me before. I mean, I've I've totally fucked things up, you know. But I think people respect people don't expect you to to to, to come back to them and say, "I've honestly that was terrible." Um, I really and you know what I think the biggest miss is how many times have you got off a demo and you're like, "I didn't, I really didn't nail that point." Like I, I you can see it in their faces, and you're like, "The one thing I needed to nail, I, I didn't nail that." Um, and I feel like if that ever happens. The best thing to do is literally, uh, you just said it correctly, you've got to be prepared, but it's to call them back and say, hey, I really feel like I didn't land that point with you. And this is why it's really important. So we're just going to call you. I'm going to run through that one bit of the demo again. I'm going to talk about why that's really important. Appreciate this is out of the blue. But it, I, in terms of, you know, your motivation, your need, your, your, your initiatives, et cetera, it is really, really instrumental that you understand why our tech fulfills that. And like- That point. Sorry, Emily, I just got off there. On that point, this is this is this has happened to me in a demo before. It's happened to me in a business face presentation before as well. And I was I was way too insecure to to then make that call to the it was to the CFO afterwards. And I knew he left unconvinced. And I was like, hey, right, everybody's just lost it. But I was fine. I just blowing it up because I knew what he wanted. He did. We cared about. We talked about something completely left field, and I could see he was like Psh, not interested. And when you're dealing with big deals like this, especially the way you've just talked us through, you created three, four different business cases, value assessments. Have you got any advice for how to, is it the same? Is it a cookie cutter technique? You just bring them back and say, we didn't do it. Or do you feel like that's actually got one chance to do that? So tough. I think largely we all, like you, if you, you got to get it right on the first, you're lucky if they give you a second chance, but, that, but you should always try, right? Like you don't ask, you don't get. So you know, whether, you know, you follow up and they and they are receptive to that, like I would say probably 50-50%, but if you don't do it, then you would never know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in terms of like building individual business cases, that is always unique to a particular business. Like I've never met two businesses, even selling the same product, that like they're identical. Like motivations yeah. can, can range from personal to business to fiscal. So um, I think... That is the piece you need to sort of spend time on is like understanding the people that you're working with and really understanding what is going to move the needle from them. Obviously, like you can read an annual report and be like, I know you, know you need to do X amount of growth, et cetera, mm-hmm. but I think it's more like 
what is that for you? Like, what is what is your target? Are you behind target? Did you make target last year? What happens if you don't make target this year? Are you growing in, like, things like that. So just understanding really in depth um, what is going to move the needle. I mean, that's obviously talking about money again, but sometimes it's more like, growing teams being able like brand awareness etc like you just got to play on like whatever is that person's desire for for their company yeah you kind of need to get that right first time because if you get it wrong and you come back and try and get it right next time it sounds just get worse sounds like you're just trying to you change the numbers or you massage it you edited the things that i told you it's like at that level you kind of need to get it right the first time in the deal that you lost as well, like let's go back to the business cases. I presume that you probably had discovery calls with each of those C-suite where you asked loads of questions. How different, I know they were in different departments, but but did were, were there strategic themes that like were relayed in all of those different business cases that you tried to then collate to sell to the CEO? Or what did that look like? Or were they completely different? Um, some of them were different. Some of them were strategic. I think sometimes using strategic initiatives had varying luck with it. Ultimately, a lot of strategic initiatives come from CEOs, but you'd be surprised how many times you play back strategic initiatives to a CEO and they go, not important to me. <laughs> think, well, you wrote that, but um, <laughs> um, so that's just important to understand um, everyone else's, like what they see as the strategic initiatives for the business because sometimes what is said on a, on a website or an annual report actually has no bearing to what they've been told internally. Hmm. Um, so I think in in this deal there were there were some that were universal. You know they were looking to so scale. You know they're a company that was growing. You know they needed uniform tool set. They needed to be able to, um, and and each department needed a way to be able to um, disseminate information in an easy way, in a way that didn't require a lot of maintenance, just because they were quite a lean organization at that stage. So those kind of themes were across all the different business units, um, but. I think then it was the more individual KPIs, you know, it's sort of like what the CRO kind of needed, he needed revenue, the marketing needed ROI on content. Um, and and it's really hard for a lot of people. So sales is the easiest business unit to measure ROI on. We have revenue face. Every other business unit, it's really hard for them to measure their, their impact if what they've done is moving the needle. Um, and so for them, it was more like, okay, like what 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 do you need to prove to prove your business unit is successful? Like what what are those metrics? And then trying to see if there's a way that you, your tool can do that, can help with that. Um, you know, can they, can they say, well, if you work with this person, if this person has this and the flow and effect will be yours, you may not have like a actual number against it. But yeah, kind of working out. So I feel like I'm... <laughs> My brain is just spiraling thinking about this deal. But yeah, it's um I think it's more about working out like those individual, like work out the overarching themes, but then work out the individual themes and that's how you can start to contrast. Yeah, and that's interesting you say that because even as salespeople, we've got our number that we want to hit. And but if you said to me, logically, what would be the most important number to you would be the money in your bank account at the end of each month or the end of the year. Like logically, that's one that measures me the most. But if you really dug deep, I'd be like, to be honest, the number that's most important to me is my percentage to quota. 
obviously the second one, the, the first one follows on from the second one, but that's the one that I'm going to be remembered by that's public, that everybody knows. And so if you were selling to me, that would be my third level motivation, if that is to make sense. Yeah. So to come to me and be like, the business strategy is to take over in Mia this year. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I don't know the CEO. Well, I don't care about my win-loss ratio. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. My competitor win-loss ratio. Yeah. And do you know what's so, like, just thinking about it, Jack, when we invite guests on to the podcast, there's only been one person of every guest we've we've had on that instead of talking about what their percentage to quota was as their biggest achievement was how much money they'd made that year. And so that just shows you that actually the reason the war, let's say hypothetically speaking of the small subset of sales reps that we've ended up focusing on, like what actually people care about is how well they specifically do in their career. And luckily money is just an offset of how well that number is. That's so true actually. And that just instantly applies when you're trying to build a business case or sell, sell it, sell your product to someone. It's not about, okay, their promotion and probably is, but it's not about like, it's about what they get from it, what they perceive publicly to, to look like. God, we're weird beasts, aren't we? <laughs> that's, that's working backwards, though. Like, you know the goal is promotion. You know the goal is a massive bonus. You know the goal is club. To me, I'm obsessed with the minutia. Like, you should see how many dashboards I have. I'm like, right, what? like, where am I at at this stage in the funnel? Why is that not working? Like, what is this? Like, I that is where I'm totally, to me, when someone's like, what do you care about? I'm like, I care about the 20 dashboards that I track every single day. Like, that is what I care about. Yeah. Because like I know, I know, I know what the end goal is. And like, yes, I want that, yes, I care about, it, and yes, I'm working to that. But in an immediate sense, that is what I need to control to get to that. It's funny, I know our BDRs is watching this and they're gonna present a demo for you, they're gonna just show you all of our dashboards. Yeah. It doesn't change though. It's like when you're a BDR, you've got dashboards. When you're an AE, you got dashboards. When you're a salesman, you've got even more dashboards. But it's like literally all you need to like my kind of my new ethos is like. I look at the at the end of the day and I'm like, have I moved the needle on at least one of these? Some days you don't, some days you move needle on multiple, but that's my goal, you know? I think that's a good, about uh, competitor ratios as well. I was obsessed with that last year. Obsessed. I'm obsessed with like I'm obsessed with funnel conversion. Like, why is everything dropping out here? What is happening here? What are we doing here? And then if and then if you fix that, you're like, right, why are we getting stuck here? <laughs> Need some sales off dashboards. <laughs> they have sales off dashboards, mate. You sold them the deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Emily, what I wanted to talk about now is like you know we've gone into like losing the deal, but you know the the positive outcome of this was you managed to build such great champions that, um, as we joked at the beginning, lose one by three. Yeah. You know, you and you sold three deals off the back of this. Could you talk to us about, you know, the process, you know, keeping in contact with these people and making sure they were engaged? So, um, the so the business case being blocked by multiple people, um, uh, in the company actually had like a, it had a very dramatic um, outcome in that people left. Like people quit the company that I sold. Um, and I think probably there was a combination of things, but I think that people felt incredibly undermined that they had presented very galvanized business cases and their voices weren't heard. And ultimately, if that comes from, you know, your leader, um, you kind of question your validity and why they've employed you. So actually a lot of people left the company as a result of this deal, which has never happened to me before. Um, but the lovely thing was is that, Three of those people 
when they left, I kept in contact with my champion um, and worked with her and her subsequent business. And then two others reached out as well. And we kind of progressed those deals. And so I lost one, um, but ultimately it ended up in, in I think, there's two. And then I think the third close went ultimately after I left. But um, it was sort of the big hit at the time was ultimately sweetened by that. Um, and I, I never anticipated that was going to happen. But I think at the time I didn't, I sort of downplayed how, like, how strongly I had made champions of these people. So the moment they left, they were like, I've left. Um, we want, we want your, we want your software. Um, and then the evaluation started straight away. And obviously we didn't need to do it because we'd already done it and I'd done the business case and knew exactly. Um, and, and since then I'm still in contact with quite a lot of them. Um, I always think it's a really good measure if you move jobs, if on LinkedIn, your ex, your ex customers are like, well done. Um, uh, so, like a lot of them, I still sort of in, in in contact with some more than others. But yeah, ultimately, it was um it was a happy ending. Hence, why I was sort of like a real low, but then a real high at the end afterwards, which was just totally unexpected. Um, but I think just testament to to the relationships that I'd built with those people. Well, yeah, I remember when I was first starting off in my career, my my first manager used to say to me all the time, like he was obsessive over referrals. Mm. He would be like, "Your best." advocates and your best customers will be either people who give you referrals or get a referral to you because like, you need to look at them all the time and this is just case in point like although this isn't a referral it kind of is in a sense these are like your network your people the people who trust you people who spoke to the people who trust you and so on and that's better than any lead or any inbound or any outbound that you can cultivate it's like these people in your network who trust you are going to buy from you and like, yeah lose one buy three that's great <laughs> referrals <laughs> I agree with you. And what I do as like a best practice is once I sell to, because largely your champion is never who uses your, you know, your software or like it's sort of 50-50. But um, what I always do is once I sell a deal, I put, it's really old school, I put um, reminders in my calendar, one for three months, one for six months, and then one for 12 months. And I call my champion. I'm like, hey, how did the rollout go? Six months. Hey, how's it going? Um, 12 months. Hey, it's been, it's been a, it's been a year. And I appreciate for news for new business in particular, normally that's not your job because you have an account manager, but that person will leave and you'll sell to them again. And they appreciate that you call them at three months and you call them at six months, you call them at 12 months. And it feels, cause I think a lot of champions, we sell to them and then we drop them. We, we ghost them. <laughs> you know, we're like build up so much. And then once a deal done, you're like, see ya. Um, and so I think a lot of champions that I've built over the years, because I've always had this cadence of follow-up with them, they still reach out to me. I've been able to sell to them again. You know, I've been able to work with them, some of them again. Um, and it's just really like bringing that personal level to, you know, because sometimes we we do we are just in it to sell without sounding sinister. But I think that kind of legacy trail of communications it, it is exactly what you said jack it kind of brings you that refer it's like self-referral just by being a decent person and also there's a common theme to all episodes that we run here is that all the top sales people that we speak to tell us like if you care and you show the customer that you care you'll win some deals like hey, always know their birthdays know their kids birthdays know their yeah. cat birthdays <laughs> cool um, well i think uh we'll wrap it up there yeah. Thanks so much, Emily, for joining us. We really appreciated that. I learned a lot, wrote loads of notes. So thanks a lot. No, thanks, guys. I was going to say, um, 